0: The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are the most significant events in all of history. And the events described in this short passage in the Gospel of Mark are the most significant turning point in the life of Jesus Christ. They took him from being a private citizen, a humble carpenter living in an unimportant small town, to publicly proclaiming himself to be the promised Messiah, the king of his people. And the parallel account in the gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus was 30 years old when these events took place, which was the age at which a priest would enter into his service in the temple. And so Jesus, who we are told in Hebrews is our great high priest forever, entered into his service at that age as well. He is, as Mark told us in the first verse of this gospel, the son of God. He is the unique God-man, the only mediator between God and men, the only savior of mankind, the creator of the universe, the Lord of history, and the one to whom we will all have to give an account at the end of our lives. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I've organized our examination of this passage under four headings this morning, which come straight from the text. And the first heading is simply the first three words of the passage, namely, at that time. And The second heading will be, Heaven Opened. And the third will be, God's Beloved. And the fourth is Holy Spirit empowered work. So let's begin with the first three words of our passage at that time. In our translation, verse 9 begins At that time Jesus came from Nazareth. And the Greek construction used at the beginning of this verse is a conscious imitation of the style used in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament in use at the time of Christ. It can be more literally rendered as, and it came to pass in those days. Mark was conscious of the fact that he was recording real history regarding the life, teaching, and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He knew that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He knew that Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, and he is telling us historical fact not fiction. What Mark wrote was true, and we need to pay careful attention. The modern view that doctrine and historical truths are unimportant so long as we are spiritual is incoherent nonsense. When some Sadducees questioned Jesus about the law, he rebuked them, as we read in Mark 12, verse 24, by saying, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? If we want to know the truth, we must know what the word of God says, and we must know God, and we must love God. I'm not talking about head knowledge. I'm talking about experiential knowledge of God. And to love God as Christ told us in John 14:15 means that we will obey him. And so in John 8, verses 31 and 32, we read that Jesus told the Jews who had believed him that if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And of course, to hold to my teaching simply means to obey. You cannot know the truth in its fullest sense if you do not obey God. John Calvin began his great work The Institutes of the Christian Religion by writing Our wisdom in so far as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts the knowledge of God and of ourselves and we learn about God and ourselves in the Bible which is the word of God understanding the word of God properly is critically and eternally important It alone tells us that we are sinners, and it alone tells us that we are bound for hell, and it alone tells us how to be saved. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 34, Paul commands his readers, "'Come back to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame.'" And in 2 Peter 3.16, the apostle mentions ignorant and unstable people who distort the scriptures to their own destruction. The Bible is the most important book ever written. It alone contains the truth about how we can be saved and to ignore or distort its message is to court eternal destruction. The modern scientific worldview that dominates UC Davis and virtually every other university denies the existence of anything outside of the physical universe. Many intellectuals and professors will tell you that it is irrational to believe in the God of the Bible. But that is a lie born out of human arrogance and enmity against the holy God. The truth is that it is irrational to believe that this universe popped into existence out of nothing with no cause. It is irrational to believe that living, sentient moral beings came into existence through the random combination of non-living chemicals. It is irrational to believe that there is no absolute moral standard. It is irrational to believe that our ultimate standard for truth should be a brain that is supposed to be nothing more than atoms in motion, obeying the laws of physics, and which is supposed to have developed by random mutations and natural selection over millions of years in a fight for survival. That is irrational. In fact, the Bible tells us that this unbelieving worldview is worse than irrational. It is wicked because it is suppressing the truth and it is rebellion against God. We all know, if we are honest with ourselves, that God exists. Romans 1, 18 and 19 tell us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Friends, don't suppress the truth. Lies will not set you free. Only the truth can do that. So pay attention to Mark. He is telling us about real historical events. Christianity is reality. It is historically true. We need to pay attention. And so our passage begins in verse 9 by saying that at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He was and is perfectly sinless, which is why in Matthew's account we're told that John the Baptist tried to deter Jesus from being baptized by saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me And yet Jesus was beginning his public ministry by identifying with his sinful people. The Lord of glory had already humbled himself and become a man. And now in this action, he humbled himself even further and submitted to a baptism of repentance, which was intended to symbolically cleanse a person of sin. And he did this in spite of the fact that he had no sin of his own, of which he needed to repent. But in being baptized by John, he identified with those sinners whom he came to save. And then in verse 10, we read that as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove, which leads to my second point this morning. Heaven opened. Friends, let me tell you the truth. There is a real heaven and a real hell. And every single one of us is going to one of those two places as our eternal home. The intellectual in the university will tell you that these places don't exist because we can't see them or go and measure their extent and determine their nature. But they are real. Unless you suppress the truth, you know that is true. You know that this life is not all there is. You know that when you die, you don't really simply cease to exist. And the word of God, which is truth, tells us in Hebrews 9.27 that man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. And Jesus told us in Matthew 25.46 that the wicked will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We all know that there is a judgment coming, which is why people fear death as much as they do. So be warned and take heed. Life is short, and eternity never ends. It is the most logical and important thing you can do in this life to prepare yourself for eternity. You know from the nature of the world around you, and from your own nature, that God exists. But you must look into God's Word to see how to be saved. And you know you need a Savior. Is there anyone here who would volunteer to stand alone before the perfectly holy and just God as judge? The God who created you and knows your every thought, word, and deed? The God who has commanded you to be perfect as he is perfect? Have you ever loved him as you ought to have loved him? Have you lived a life of thankful obedience to his every command? Would you really want to stand before him and ask him to judge you justly? I can't believe that anyone would be so foolishly arrogant as to want that. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so we should all ask, what must I do to be saved? The fact that heaven opened shows us that there is more to this universe than we can see with our physical eyes. There is a spiritual dimension as well. You are not just atoms in motion. You have a spirit, and that is what makes you a rational, moral, responsible human being. The spiritual realm is every bit as real as the physical realm, even though we can't normally see it or touch it. And yet, as a testimony to the unique nature of Jesus Christ, heaven opened and the Father sent the Holy Spirit down to Jesus in the visible form of a dove. And we see the triune nature of God in this passage— The father in heaven, Jesus Christ, the God man here on earth and the Holy Spirit coming down upon him, which is a most important fact that we will return to in a few minutes. But this brings us to verse 11, where we hear the father speak. We read that a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love with you. I am well pleased, which leads to my third point. God's beloved. It's true that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary in the town of Bethlehem a little over 2,000 years ago, but that was only the beginning of the Incarnation. The eternal Son of God had no beginning. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always existed. He is the only necessarily and independently existing being. The Apostle John tells us about the eternal nature of Jesus Christ clearly in the first chapter of his gospel. We read in verses 1 through 4, and then 14 and 18, "'In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men.'" the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only who came from the father full of grace and truth no one has ever seen god but god the one and only who is at the father's side has made him known jesus christ the eternal word has made the father known to us we're told in hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 that After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Oh, how glorious. As these verses tell us, God spoke to his people through the prophets for many years before Christ came. And we have the record of that communication in the Old Testament. And the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the prophecies made hundreds of years before he was born. In fact, these words of God, spoken at Jesus' baptism, hearken back to what God said in Isaiah 42, verse 1, which is the beginning of what is the so-called servant passage, the first one of them. And God declared, "...here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations." But now, God has spoken through Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, whom, with, through whom He created the universe. This Son is the exact representation of God's being and sustains all things. And we are told that He provided purification for sins. When that work was accomplished, He sat down at the right hand of God. And in our passage this morning, we read about the beginning of Christ's work. According to God's plan, as revealed through the prophets in the Old Testament, Jesus had to become incarnate, because it was man who sinned, and it therefore needed to be a man who paid the penalty, which is why the Savior had to be a man. But no mere man could possibly pay that penalty, which is why the Savior also had to be God. After being born, the man Jesus of Nazareth had to grow up, just like all other men do. He had to learn to walk and to talk and to earn a living. We're told in Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52, that as a child he was obedient to his parents and that he grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and with men. And Jesus was not only perfectly obedient to his earthly parents, he was also perfectly obedient to his heavenly father. He knew what it was he came to accomplish. And in our passage this morning, we see just the beginning of what is called his public ministry. In obedience to his Father's will, he was baptized. And God then sent the Holy Spirit to indwell him. And in John 3, verse 34, we're told that he dwelled in him without limit. We then read in verse 12 of our passage that at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And this leads to my fourth point, Holy Spirit empowered work. God created this universe for a purpose, which is the manifestation of his own glory. And all of history is unfolding according to God's eternal plan to accomplish that purpose. And there is work that each one of us has to do. We each have a role assigned to us. And just as God poured out his Holy Spirit on Jesus without measure to enable him to do the most difficult task any person has ever done... So he will provide his Holy Spirit to us in sufficient measure to do the work that he has assigned for us to do. All we need to do is ask. We read in Luke 11, verse 13, that Jesus told his disciples, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, began his work. And the first thing he had to do in his public ministry was to go through 40 years in a desert wilderness being tempted by Satan. We're told in verse 13 that Jesus was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now we first encounter Satan in the book of Genesis. Satan was originally created as a great holy angel who enjoyed perfect communion with God. But for some unfathomable reason, he became proud and rebelled against God, and as a result, he lost communion with God and he became his arch enemy. In Genesis, we see him fighting against God by tempting Eve and bringing about the fall of mankind. And we should take note that Adam and Eve were given a very simple command to obey under ideal circumstances. They were in an idyllic garden. They had all the food they could possibly need. They had beauty and peace with each other and with God. There were no dangers. There was no sickness. There was no sorrow or pain of any kind. And they were only forbidden to eat the fruit of one tree. And yet they failed. They rebelled against their creator by violating this simple command. When God pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve for their sin, he also pronounced judgment on Satan. We read in Genesis 3.15 that God told him, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Satan knows that his days are numbered. He knows that he is only a creature and cannot defeat God. In fact, he can do nothing without God's permission. And yet, in spite of the futility of it all, his hatred drives him to continue to oppose God to the utmost of his ability. And Jesus was driven into the desert for 40 days without food to be tempted by Satan. But God always has a purpose in bringing trials, and we know the purpose for Jesus' temptations. We're told in Hebrews 4 verse 15 that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Friends, Jesus knows experientially what it is like to endure great hardship and tremendous temptation. And he was completely victorious because he was filled beyond measure With the Holy Spirit of God. And we should contrast the task assigned to Jesus with the temptation that Adam and Eve had experienced. He was in a desert, they were in a garden. He had nothing to eat for 40 days, they had all the food they could want. He was with wild animals who would like to do him harm, whereas all of the animals in the garden were completely subject to Adam and Eve. And Jesus' temptations were unimaginably greater than the one that tripped up Adam and Eve. And yet, by the Holy Spirit power, Jesus was victorious. He never sinned. And this same awesome Holy Spirit power is available to us who believe. Praise God. In overcoming these temptations, Jesus showed us how we can defeat Satan when we are tempted. In James 4, verse 7, we're told, "...submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you." Therefore, the first step in defeating Satan is to be fully submitted to the will of God. And Jesus was fully submitted to the will. He had become incarnate and lived a perfectly sinless life to this point. And now he submitted fully by being baptized and then going out into the desert to be tempted." The second step in defeating Satan is to resist him. And Jesus demonstrated for us how to do that, too. Although Mark does not provide the details, we're told of three specific temptations in the accounts in Matthew and Luke. In each case, Satan struck at what he perceived to be a possible weakness and wrongly interpreted the word of God. And in each case, Jesus stood firm and replied with Scripture correcting Satan and vindicating God. We need the Holy Spirit to properly understand God's Word so that we can effectively oppose Satan. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But the flip side of that statement is also true. The man with the spirit does understand the things of the spirit of God. Friends, let me tell you, if you are fully submitted to the will of God and if you know his word and apply it correctly, then you, too, can defeat Satan. We have God's promise in 1 Corinthians ten, thirteen, that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. We have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way, but never sinned. Go to him in prayer. Ask for the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who helped Jesus. And he will supply you with all that you need to resist temptation and glorify God. But Jesus' victory provided much more than just a good example for us. And he endured far more than just the temptations in the desert for those 40 days. He went on to minister to the people for three years, healing the sick, raising the dead, driving out demons, choosing and instructing his apostles, and challenging the rulers and the priests in their hypocrisy. And then at the end of those three years, he willingly gave himself over to suffer the agonizing and shameful death of a criminal on the cross, bearing our sins." And he did this all in his humanity by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because he himself was completely sinless and had lived a perfectly obedient life, he was a worthy sacrifice. We're told in Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9 that although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And pay careful attention to that limiting clause. He did not come to save everyone. He came to save those who obey him. And because he is not just a perfect, sinless man, but also God, his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for the sins of every person who will surrender to him and trust in him alone. We're told in 1 Peter 1 verses 18 and 19 that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Praise God for his glorious plan of salvation. We're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, every single one of us begins life as a child of Adam. Having inherited his sinful nature and his guilt, we are enemies of God and subject to his eternal wrath. We are controlled by our sinful natures. And can never do anything out of love for God or a desire to please and obey Him. All we can do is sin. We refuse to submit to God's rule. In Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, we're told that the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. But God does not leave us in that hopeless condition. In John, verses 3 and 5, we read that Jesus told Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and of the Spirit. If you have never been born again, you are spiritually dead and headed for eternal hell. So what must you do to be saved? You must confess that you are a sinner worthy of God's wrath and that you cannot save yourself and then cry out for God to have mercy upon you and give you a new heart so that you can see and understand the truth. For Jesus Christ not only died on the cross to pay for our sins, he also rose from the dead on the third day for our justification. God raised him up because death had no hold on him. God's raising him up showed that his sacrifice had been accepted. Our sins have been paid for in full, and salvation has been earned. So we are told in Romans 10:9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation is a gift from God. It is free and costs you nothing. Indeed, if you think you can earn even the tiniest fraction of it, then you have not truly seen your need and you are not saved. But let me issue a warning to all of us. The confession we make is that Jesus is Lord. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. If you are a new creation and Jesus is truly your Lord then you will be changed, and that change will be visible. Your life will be different. Remember, He only came to save those who obey. I said earlier that God's purpose in creation is the manifestation of His own glory. And therefore, in 1 Corinthians 10.31, we're told whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And we can look to Jesus to see how we glorify God. In John 17, verse 4, Jesus was praying to the Father and he said, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And there is work for each of us to do as well. In Ephesians 2.10, we're told we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We glorify God by being obedient and doing the work he has assigned. And if we do the work that God has ordained for us to do, angels will attend us as they did Jesus. Your work in the Lord is never in vain, and if you are perfectly obedient in doing His work, you cannot fail. God will make sure that you succeed, but you need the Holy Spirit to enable and guide you every step of the way. So ask for the Holy Spirit. Cry out to God. It is my hope and prayer that everyone who can hear my voice will see the truth of God's word and be born again so that we can all obey God's commands to repent and to believe on his son, Jesus Christ. And then we can all glorify God by being filled with the Holy Spirit and doing the work he has given us to do. We will then spend eternity together in heaven, enjoying perfect fellowship with God and with one another. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy and grant us all eyes to see and ears to hear your glorious gospel call. And grant us your Holy Spirit to enable us to repent, believe, and walk in the obedience of faith. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.